Please open your Bibles to John chapter 9. You'll find the notes this morning's message in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find the text on the back of the notes. And we continue now our second week into this section, beginning in John 9, 1, going all the way through chapter 10, verse 21. Jesus heals a man born blind, and then we watch what happens ensuing following his healing. So I'd like to begin this morning by reading John 9, 6 through 12. I'll have a word of prayer. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go, wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. Lord God, I pray that just as um, you gave eyes to see for this man, that you might give us spiritual sight, clear, might behold the glory of your son as he works this powerful miracle. Give us understanding as we read your word that we too might see and believe and believing have life. A well-known miracle one that often gets eclipsed by the raising of Lazarus in John chapter 11, yet nevertheless a striking miracle. In in our passage this morning, the neighbors, the friends, the, the Pharisees, unlike other miracles Jesus did, they simply refuse to believe this has happened. We'll see next week, I believe, just how unusual, how unheard of it was for a man born blind to be healed. It's covered in a few verses, and yet so much is covered there. So we're going to look at this in three points. We're going to look at the miracle itself. Jesus gives sight to a man born blind. And then, and we mentioned this last week, breaking the normal pattern in John's gospel. Normally, Jesus works a sign, and then Jesus talks a fair bit. We call that a discourse, and that gives some semblance of meaning or purpose to the miracle. Here, Jesus does the sign, then this guy gets bounced around four times. His neighbors and friends... The Pharisees, then his Pharisees talk to his parents, and then they talk to him again, and then they kick him out, and then Jesus returns, and then Jesus speaks. Well, we're dealing with the first of those interviews, the friends and the neighbors, this morning. Next week, we'll look at the ones centering around the Pharisees and the Jews. So let's dive in um, by looking first. Jesus gives sight to a man born blind. Jesus gives sight to a man born blind having said these things. So verse 6 begins by connecting this back to verse 4 and verse 5. What things is it that Jesus said? And we return to our study from last week. Jesus said, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So if you remember, this began with them walking by and the disciples seeing the man and asking who sinned. They assumed such a, such a calamity, 
such a blight, being born blind, had to be the result either of his sin in the womb or perhaps his parents' sin. And we considered last week that sometimes that is the case. It's not that they're completely off base. Their error was in assuming it was always one-to-one. And Jesus says, no, in this instance, his blindness is not due to a specific sin of his parents. His blindness is not due to a specific sin of his in utero, but rather his blindness is that God might work his works in him. And we considered the, the truth that sometimes God sends suffering and trials to his children simply that he might be glorified in them. This morning, we're going to see how that works out. And then piggybacking off of the notion that he was born blind, that the works of God might be displayed in him, that links to Jesus' thought, we, he and his disciples, must work the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. That also helps frame the significance of the miracle. The light of the world is going to cause this man to see. I think we can see Pardon the pun, how that makes some sense. So then the healing of this man is seen to be one of the works that God has sent him to do. So here are your blanks. First, having said these things, what things? Most recently, Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world. It's obvious, but we should not skip over it simply because it's obvious. This is a seeing miracle, a sight miracle. And the light of the world is granting sight. And this is in keeping with some of John's usage. Turn back to chapter 1 of John where this first um, title, that Jesus has light, and the light is connected with life, is made. We'll just pick it up in 1.1 through verse 5. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And darkness has not overcome it. Jump down to verse nine. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So Jesus is the true light who gives light to everyone. Then go to chapter three. Just briefly tracing this theme of light in John's gospel. 19 through 21. I know we've come here many times and I'm sure we will come here many times again. As, as John frames the cosmic conflict here, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world. That's Jesus. People loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now here we get the connection of the theme of light and doing the works of God. Doing the works of God. And then specifically um, in chapter 8, Jesus says word for word in chapter 8, 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. That's what he just said previously here in chapter 9. 
So Jesus has come into the world as light, and he's a light that spreads, that enlightens others. And we realize there are two responses to the light coming in. There's hating the light and running from the light, such like cockroaches when you turn on a light. And others come to the light that it might be seen their works have been wrought in God. The works of God have been done in them. This will set up both of these responses. We will see through the growing hostility of the Pharisees next week how they hate the light, And this man's physical sight will be paralleled by his spiritual sight as he ultimately worships the Christ, the Son of God. So we're going to see both of these done. The light has come into the world and point to Jesus must work the works of God. We're to understand this miracle as one of those works of God. In fact, last week we ended by considering that on the one hand, the miracle is a work, but the greater work is bringing this man to faith. Ultimately, when Jesus is asked by those who crossed the sea to see him after he fed them, what must we do to work the works of God? The answer he gives them in John six twenty-seven to 29 is this. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. And this narrative will end with that man doing exactly this. The works that God requires, the works of God will be wrought in him as he worships Jesus. So that's sort of a framing of this. Now let's look at the miracle itself. And it's unusual. It's unusual. In the other Gospels, there are at least two other healings of blind men. There's the blind man at Jericho, Bartimaeus. And there's the blind man at Bethsaida. And Matthew and Mark and Luke give those accounts. But this is unique. In those accounts, that the blind men cry out and ask. They're miracles of faith. Jesus even says, your, your faith has given you sight. The, the, the blind men beseech Jesus to heal them, and then he responds and he comments on their faith. Here, um, we see Jesus takes the initiative. That's your first blank. Jesus takes the initiative. This man asks for nothing. He says nothing yet. Jesus rather sees him, recognizes it's necessary for him to work the works of God, and he takes action. The other part that's unique is is how he goes about doing this. And and I want to pause and and have you consider a contrast between this miracle and the healing of the man by the pool in chapter 5. They both have striking similarities and contrasts. The similarities would be the following. Both of these men are notoriously injured and sick. 38 years for the man by the pool. This man's born blind. They're known to be beggars. They're well known. That's going to set up that when Jesus heals them, it's a big deal. These are recognized people. This isn't a long con. Um, Both of them are done on a Sabbath, and the Sabbath controversy will come up. Not so much here, although the the Jews will still mention it. Both of them are, are done by Jesus to set up a controversy about him. So he heals notoriously injured people, he, he does so on a Sabbath, but then consider the distinctions. Um, here, Jesus makes mud with spit. In chapter 5, he just speaks. He just speaks. Your, your blank here is Jesus' deeds and not just his words are powerful. In chapter 5, the healing of the man um, who's been paralyzed we see the power of Jesus' words. He just speaks. He says, pick up your mat. He does nothing. There's no spell that is cast. There's no performance that is done. The power of the word of the word heals. And the man gets up immediately. Here, we see Jesus' deeds are powerful. He does something. And his doing is effective as well. 
So Jesus takes the initiative, and Jesus' deeds and not just his words are powerful. This is, after all, the one who, according to chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, made all things. So his words are powerful, but his actions are powerful. And Jesus is taking the initiative, just like the woman at the well who's surprised that he begins a dialogue with her. Just like in chapter 5 where he initiates, do you want to be made well? Here, he takes the initiative. He spit on the ground and made mud. He anointed the man's eyes with the mud. It's also possible by making the mud. Jesus is setting up the potential of being accused of breaking the Sabbath. He's working. He's making bricks. We know know the Pharisees are ridiculous enough. They might actually try to charge him with that. He's kneading clay. Possibly. Possibly. Jesus takes initiative. His deeds and not just his words are powerful. And then Jesus sends him away to wash in the pool of Siloam. And John gives us the translation. It's the pool that is called Scent. It's called Scent as best as we can understand because it's fed by a spring and it's flowing from the spring. The pool is the sending of the spring. And in John's gospel, Jesus has just said in verse 4 of chapter 9, we must work the works of him who sent me. So Jesus is the sent one and he's sending this blind man with mud caked on his eyes to the pool that's called sent. And the man obeyed and returned seeing. The man obeyed and returned seeing. So it's interesting. Jesus just acts. He doesn't even talk. There's no indication he talks to the guy before he even acts. He makes the mud, walks up, puts the mud cast on his eyes, and then tells him to go to the pool and to wash. And the man came back seeing. Now what's significant is, and we'll see this, the man, because of the way this is done, doesn't physically see Jesus. We know that because, jump a little later in the chapter, verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said to him, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man doesn't recognize Jesus. He said to him, who is he, sir? So Jesus does the miracle in such a way that the man doesn't yet see him. All the controversy is going to be about who Jesus is. All the questions and all of the discussion with the Pharisees will be about who Jesus is. But after sending him away, Jesus himself as an actor drops out of the narrative until verse 35. He, makes, he spits, he makes the mud, he applies it to his eyes, he sends him, and the man comes back healed, seeing a miraculous, powerful sign. And I think John wants us to draw some attention to how it was done. We'll come to this a little later. But it is unusual. None of the other healings of people born blind occur like this. None of them have clay being put in eyes. This is unique. This is unique. So we go from the Jesus gives sight to a man born blind to the friends. Man's friends and neighbors are amazed. The man's friends and neighbors are amazed. Now this is notable. This is remarkable. The man will later make the point when he talks to the Pharisees, there is no precedent for it in the Old Testament. Someone born blind, probably visibly blind, either he may not have eyes in his sockets, he may have eyes that are blank, but most likely obviously blind. In fact, his, his blindness was so much a part of who he was known to be that when he comes back seeing, part of his neighbors and friends don't even think it's him. They can't tell. No, no, it just looks like him, they say. Notice their confusion. Their confusion. Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And we considered that by virtue of being blind, he was 
cast entirely upon the, the kindness and the generosity of others. He was destined to beg. Clearly, over his entire life, that he would have been well known. And yet, this change, this alteration is such a big deal, so unprecedented. They're like struggling with, is it really him? The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is, not, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. But he kept saying, I am the man. I am the man. And, and this, is, this is typical to John's gospel. We're, we're told there's a controversy. Remember back in chapter 7 when some are saying Jesus is leading the people astray and others are saying he's a demon and some are saying, no, he's a prophet. So John's got this, this, this tubbub, if you will, taking place. The man is healed. Jesus sends him away to wash. Jesus drops out as an actor for a bit. And now we center around this man. And I want to pause here and say what's, what's going to start is this man is going to come to a greater and greater faith in Jesus. In chapter 8, Jesus rebuked the Jews who had believed in him because they weren't putting together the pieces they should have been able to put together. Remember when we discussed Jesus saying to them, which, which one of you convicts me of sin? And Jesus' implied argument, I believe, is I've worked many notable miracles. Which is the reason why Nicodemus, when he came to Jesus in John chapter 3, said, Teacher, we know you're from God, for no one can do the signs you do unless God is with him. I suppose the alternative explanation would be it's demonic power. That's what they will eventually accuse him of. And so by saying, which one of you convicts me of sin? He's saying, am I acting like the power I'm exercising is from the devil or from God? You decide. You should be able to figure this out, guys. This man will do exactly that type of calculation. And we get to see in, in his interaction, first with his friends and family, then with his um, prosecutors, the Pharisees, first once and a second time, his, his growing confession. Here, they ask, and here's point B is his confession, the beginning of his confession. Um, their confusion, his confession, he was a well-known beggar. And their question, how were your eyes opened? Now, I want to note that because the question gets asked four times. And so trying to let John direct our attention to what's significant, the how, I would suggest to you, is significant. The how is significant. So let's just, I'm going to show you the four hows. Verse 10, how were your eyes opened? Verse 15, the Pharisees asked him again how he had received his sight. Then they talked to his parents in verse 19. Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And then 9.24. So for the second time they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. He answers, Whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? So four times the question is put to this man or his parents, How was he healed? And we noted that the how is remarkable. It's the only occurrence in all the Gospels where Jesus heals this way. And so I think John, the Gospel writer, is in part drawing our attention to some significance. We'll get to this at the end of the message of how Jesus did this. It's not just that he did this. Surely he could have healed the man the same way he did in chapter 5. He could have just spoken, see, and he doesn't. He spits on the ground. He makes some clay, makes some mud, puts it on the man's eyes and sends him away. Sends him away. But the man confesses to what he knows. And, and we're going to track 
this week and next week, we're going to track this man's growing confession. So here's, here's what he knows initially, his answer. His answer in verse 11. The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. Now, presumably, this man has been told who it was who did this to him. There's no indication that Jesus and he spoke other than Jesus giving him the command. But Jesus is so well-known. We've already seen in and around Jerusalem, there's, there's controversy where he goes. Perhaps people, as he was approaching, said, Jesus is coming. Perhaps he's had a chance to talk to somebody. somebody somehow, he's figured out it was Jesus who did this, but he doesn't know much else. The man called Jesus. That's where he begins. And John gives us this baseline of his, of his knowledge of who Jesus is. What happened? The man named Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. But he's eager to confess what he knows. I, I love the picture. Some, some of them are saying, that's him. Others are saying, no, that's not him. And he, the whole time, that's me. That's me. And he is eager to testify to what God has done. Even as, here's your blank, he currently knew very little of Jesus. He currently knew very little of Jesus. He'll know more. But right now, he's the man named Jesus. That's our starting point. He will conclude more. And here's your point. He had not yet even seen Jesus. He had not yet even seen Jesus. We know that from verse 35. So we're going to pause here moving forward in the text. And I want to spend the rest of our time considering at least four, the significance of this. Four, four things, there probably could be more, but I've, I've settled on four. What's the significance of this miracle? Why? Again, remember, John tells us at the end of his gospel that his source material is so vast, he says, if all the things Jesus said and did were written, that the world wouldn't be big enough to contain them all. He says, many other signs Jesus did, but these have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So John has handpicked his material from a, from a wealth of options. What, why tell us this? Why tell us the details you've told us? Why highlight how Jesus did this? What is the significance we're to make? You remember when they followed Jesus across the sea, he said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the bread. He rebukes them for not understanding the significance. So we want to we get the significance. What are we to make of this? Four things. The significance of Jesus' healing. A, Jesus worked an unprecedented messianic sign. Jesus worked an unprecedented messianic sign. Turn, if you will, to Isaiah 42. If you remember, if you were here from our study in Luke, the passage Jesus used to self-identify who he was and what his ministry was, was Isaiah 42. Remember, he stood up in his hometown in the synagogue and he read this and then he had the audacity to sit down and saying, in your hearing today, it has been fulfilled. Let's just read this passage. Isaiah 42, verse 1, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. 
He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and from prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. That's a messianic passage. This is the Messiah promise. And what will he do? He'll be a light to the nations and he will open blind eyes. When John the Baptist is arrested and in jail and he sends his disciples to Jesus to say, are you the one or should we look for another? Jesus points precisely to this activity and says, go, go, you're, you've, you've understood me rightly. Go, go back and tell John, this is who I am. So Jesus, first and foremost, has worked a clear messianic sign. This is the type of works the Messiah would do that they should expect to do. This is Jesus, once again, putting forward clear messianic credentials. That's the first thing. But then I want you to consider, turn back even further in your Bibles to Genesis. What is the significance of how Jesus did this? Again, everything I'm assuming Jesus does is intentional. He could have just said, See, instead, we get the clay and the spit. What's the significance of that? And, and we're told four times by the, by the actors in the narrative, how, how, how did he do it? What, what's the significance of forming eyes for this man out of clay? Well, from the early church, the answer has been, here's your blank, that Jesus worked the works of God in creating man. Jesus worked the works of God in creating man. John's gospel has emphasized Jesus is the creator of all. Through him all things were made, and apart from him was not anything made that has been made. What better way to show Jesus is the creator God than to create for this man eyes in the same way the first man was created? Genesis 2, 7. How is Adam made? Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature and after the fall when the man is cursed turn to chapter 3 what does God say by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you are taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return you and I are animated dust, dirt. Psalm 103 reminds us of this. He knows our frame. He remembers we are dust. And so Jesus heals this man intentionally mimicking, imitating the very creative work of God in Genesis 2. What a way to demonstrate his deity. Let me read for you a quote from church father um, Irenaeus. 
This is an old interpretation. As I'm trying to think through, what is the significance? What is Jesus communicating? Why draw attention to doing it with mud? Uh, and the, the early church has seen this. Here's, the, here's a quote from Irenaeus. That which the word had omitted to form in the womb, namely the blind man's eyes, he then supplied in public that the works of God might be manifest in him. So let me read that again. That which Jesus the word had omitted to form in the womb. In the womb, this man was not formed with eyes, who's blind from birth. He, Jesus, then supplied in public that the works of God might be manifest in him in order that we might not be seeking out another hand by which man was fashioned, nor another father, knowing that this hand of God which formed us at the beginning, which does form us in the womb, has in these last times sought us out who were lost, winning back his own and taking up the lost sheep upon his shoulder and with joy restoring it to the fold of life. I believe that's part of what Jesus is doing here. He's imitating, modeling the very creative work of God in the garden in Genesis 2. Point C, Jesus begins the work of giving this man spiritual sight. I suggested last week that the miracle is a means to an end, the end being the true work of God. What are the works of God? Do you believe in the one whom he has sent? And so I just want to preview for you this man's putting together truth. We see his first confession, his first confession in verse 11, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. But then they press him further. Um, verse 15, the Pharisees again asked how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God. For he does not keep the Sabbath, but others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him? Since he has opened your eyes, he said, he is a prophet. So he's, he's made another step. He went from the man called Jesus now to, no, he's, he's definitely a prophet. And he's going to ascend as he's putting this together, even as they descend in unbelief. So then they, they go and question his parents, and they're so afraid of the Jews that they, they won't even defend their son. They, they just kick him to the curb. Hey, he's old enough. You talk to him, which is to highlight also this man's courage and boldness. He's not only doing the math, putting it together. And what we're seeing is spiritually he's beginning to see. He's putting this together. Even before Jesus appears at the end to give him the last piece of information he needs, He's doing the mental math that all of those in Jerusalem should have been able to do. It, by, by his reasoning, he's condemning all the rest that we've seen, that Jesus has chided for not putting things together. Verse 24, for the second time they called the man who'd been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Now this man is identifying himself as a disciple of Jesus. He's gone from the man called Jesus to he's a prophet to do you also want to be his disciples? They reviled him, saying, you are his disciple." But we 
are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man, and notice his courage. The, his parents are intimidated by these people. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. He's putting it together. He's, here's what I know about God. This is the same, by the way, math that Nicodemus has already done in chapter 3. Teacher, we know that you are from God, for no one can do the works you do unless God is with him. They answered him, You were born in utter sin and would teach us. And they cast him out. And then Jesus returns to the scene to give him the last piece of information he needs. Jesus heard they'd cast him out. It's intentional. Jesus waits until this happens. Then, having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. So this man is becoming more and more spiritually seeing. His, his outward sight is being modeled and mirrored by a growing inward sight till he actually comes to worship Jesus, which, make no mistake, is a sign of recognizing deity. So, point C here, Jesus began the work of giving him spiritual sight. The miracle is what causes this man to chew upon and realize he's got to be a prophet. He's got to be from God. If he's from God and he's a prophet, then I want to follow him. Um, and, and he'll defend him to these religious leaders. And all that begins with this miracle. Jesus begins giving him spiritual sight. In fact, turn, we got time, turn to 2 Corinthians 4. Um, there are a number of New Testament metaphors for salvation. A number of New Testament metaphors for the work of God in the heart. In John 3, we read about being born again or being born from above. Jesus can speak of having eyes that see and ears that hear. Uh, Jeremiah 31 can speak of having a heart of stone replaced with a heart of flesh. Well, in, in 2 Corinthians 4, the metaphor is of seeing, being blind spiritually. And so in, in, a, in a very real way, there are two types of people in this world, those who are spiritually blind, whose eyes are veiled, and those who see And so Paul writes this in chapter 4, 2 Corinthians, verse 3. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Why do people perish? A very true and real answer is they are blinded to seeing anything glorious and beautiful in the gospel of the glory of Christ. They see something boring. They see something uninteresting. And, and how is that remedied? How, how does that get fixed? Do they choose to take the veil off? I'm going to start seeing. No. Verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge 
and the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul likens this inward change to Genesis 1's creation account. Just as God at no one's prompting to no one said, let there be light and the nothing obeyed and there was light. In a similar way, God, who said let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This miracle that Jesus does to this man pictures that, and his inward coming to faith demonstrates that. This is the miracle that matters. I mean, understand, if this man came to see physically but did not come to see spiritually, it would profit him nothing. It would profit him nothing. The true miracle What really matters is his spiritual sight. That's another contrast with this healing and the one in chapter 5. In chapter 5, nothing about the man indicates faith. Nothing in that account indicates he's a man of faith. In fact, Jesus warns him, sin no more lest something worse happen to you. Here, this man, by his spiritual sight, shows us, the reader, what we should be concluding and shows what all the Jews in Jerusalem should have put together. This is what they should have been able to figure out on their own. And finally, point D, in doing it this way, Jesus let Israel's shepherds reveal their true blindness. Jesus let Israel's shepherds reveal their true blindness. I said last week that this miracle sort of serves as a hinge. It completes the light imagery from chapter 8, where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He says that here, I'm the light of the world. And this man coming to faith is a contrast, a foil for the Jews who had believed in him, who are still sons of the devil, who accuse Jesus of being a demoniac from Samaria, But it also sets up what is to come. Sets up what is to come. And in chapter 10, I want you to notice a pivot, actually. Um, Pivot is, uh, let's start in verse 35, 935. And Jesus finds him. So Jesus sets it up this way. He sends him away, not seeing him. He allows him first to encounter his own people, his own shepherds. Let's see how they deal with things. Let's see what they do with this man. Let's see how they tend to this newly healed sheep. What do they do? They cast him out. They revile him. They have nothing to do with him. As far as we can tell, John invents a word. They de-synagogue him. And the good shepherd waits. Let's see what Israel's shepherds will do. And then the good shepherd learns. I love this. Jesus heard they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? I love Jesus' priorities. The first priority is this man. Oh, he's got some things to say to the Pharisees. You better believe he does. But first, he finishes birthing, to use that analogy, this man. He finishes bringing him to spiritual sight. Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him. It is he who is speaking to you. And I certainly believe in this context there's a double entendre there. The very next verse will make that clear. Yes, he's seen him physically just there and then. But spiritually, he's exercised and demonstrated a sight that these others do not have. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Then he drops out of the narrative. 
He, the, the work here for him is complete. The good shepherd has found this one lost sickly sheep, healed him, restored him, and then look at Jesus' turn as it were on a dime. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. And now we're talking about spiritual sight and spiritual blindness. <laughs> Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? <laughs> oh, that was a wrong move. <laughs> Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. And then he launches into his diatribe against the false shepherds. He is the good shepherd. They're hot. Let's just read some of this. I, just, I love this passage. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs it by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he's brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of a stranger. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me, hint, hint, you guys, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He was a hired hand, hint, hint, and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming, and leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand. I love the King James here. He is a hireling. Cares nothing for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. Have they not just demonstrated this charge is just? Have they not just proven they are in fact hirelings and care nothing for the sheep? Yes, they have. In, in orchestrating the miracle this way, Jesus sets it up. So let's see what they do. Let's see what Israel's would-be shepherds do. And what they do is they basically attack this man, getting him to curse Jesus, and when he won't, they kick him out. That's what they do. Well, the good shepherd has some things to say about that, and we'll, we'll get to that. But the way Jesus orchestrates this miracle allows for this to happen. He sets it up masterfully. So he demonstrates a clear messianic sign. The Messiah will open the eyes of the blind. He'll be a light to the nations. Jesus has just said in chapter eight, I'm the light of the world publicly. The one who said, I'm the light of the world gives sight to the blind. He does it in a way that imitates God's very creative work in Genesis two, taking dirt from the ground to fashion eyes from a man made of dust. And in doing so, he sets this man on a path of spiritual sight which will convict and shame the Jews around him. And ultimately, in working it this way, Jesus enables Israel's shepherds, the hirelings, the self-appointed shepherds, to demonstrate their true blindness. We'll have to pause here and pick it up next week. I'm going to call Mike and the worship team up for our closing song. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord God, we rejoice that our shepherd 
is so fierce and fearless that he cares for the flock. We rejoice that you have come and sought us, that you have caused us to see, you have spoken life into our hearts. We pray that you would give us the grace and the faith to follow your voice where you lead. In Jesus' name, amen.